And for this afternoon, let's turn once again to John's Gospel, chapter 17. And we will continue to look at this prayer of our Lord Jesus, referred to as his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17. And for this evening, we're going to read verses 11 through 22. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verses 11 through 22. And here is the word of God. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for the, these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. So looking at this prayer of our Lord Jesus for his disciples, we established, first of all, this morning we saw how that he prays, our Lord Jesus prays for their security. We spent a great deal of time on that, in fact, the entire service this morning was devoted to looking at the security that we have in consequence of our Lord's prayer. We come this afternoon to consider, secondly, not only is it that he prays for their security, but he prays for their unity, prays for their unity. Four times in this prayer, our Lord Jesus expresses his desire for his people to be one. In verse 11, he prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In verses 20 and 21, we see that Jesus' prayer for unity embraces not just his followers at the time he was here on earth, but future generations who would believe on him, who would come to faith in him. He prays there in verses 20 and 21, he says there, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We see there right away how important this matter of unity, the unity of God's people, is to our Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that he prays these many times for their 
unity. And this prayer of our Lord Jesus for the unity of his disciples, we could say was most timely. It was most timely when we consider that earlier at the feast, the feast of the Passover, the upper room, they were, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 22, verses, verse 24, he says, they were all divided. We learn there, they were all divided. They were disputing among themselves as to who, which of them should be the greatest. Imagine that right at the hour, and Jesus was about to go to the cross. Here were the disciples arguing, disputing which of them was to be the greatest. Jesus, in his capacity as the servant of the Lord, was headed for the cross to die, to suffer a humiliating death. And yet these men were arguing about positions. Who should be the greatest? And today, it is not uncommon to find believers divided at odds with one another for one reason or another. And there's nothing that's more hurtful, nothing that's more ruinous to the church of Jesus Christ than Christians who are at war with one another. We have heard many instances of churches being split. Believers are at loggerheads with one another. There are infightings. There are quarrelings. And that often is not a pleasant sight. If we as Christians, if we are to reflect the unity for which Jesus prays, then we must note what this unity is not. This unity of believers for which Jesus prays is not a humanly devised organizational unity. It is not what is termed today ecumenism, the idea of churches coming together, churches of all denominations, laying aside their differences, saying, well, we are all Christians, and then entering into some kind of worship, compromising the truth of the word of God. This unity for which Jesus prays is not merely a matter of believers agreeing not to disagree. This unity is not a matter of churches coming together, consenting to have some humanly devised ecclesiastical and denominational laws and traditions. In other words, this unity for which Jesus prays is not what we would call today the unity of denominationalism. It is not a man-made attempt for Christians to come together and, as we said, lay aside their differences and sometimes, sad to say, cardinal differences for the sake of unity. That is not unity. That is compromise and that is sinful in the eyes of God. The key to understanding the unity for which Jesus prays is suggested in verses 10, 11, 21, and 23. If you look at verses 10, 11, 21, and 23, we find from these statements something of the model of Christian unity. In other words, to get at the heart of what Jesus desires when he prays for the unity of his people, these verses set out for us a model as to what this unity is all about. Notice Jesus' statement to his father in verse 10. He says there, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And suggested in this statement of Jesus is the idea, it's the idea that there is a commonality, a sharing, a common participation between that which relates to the other. The implication being that basic to the unity of God's people is a mutual sharing, a mutual participation in the things of God. Notice that last two clauses, the last two clauses of verse 11. Here's Jesus again, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they all may be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus is drawing here analogies. He's using the relationship between himself and his Father, the unity there is between him and his Father. And he's saying to the Father as he prays to the Father, Father, let the unity of my people be patterned after that unity that is true of us. And what does that suggest to us? That if you look again at verse 11, here's what Jesus says. Let's read that again. He says that they may be one even as we are one. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. And what this suggests to us is that the unity for which our Lord Jesus prays is not a physical unity. There's nothing physical about this unity for which Jesus prays in connection with his people. This unity, rather, is a spiritual or mystical unity. And so notice the analogy which Jesus uses, to which he appeals as he prays for the unity of his people in verse 21. He says there that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. It's a spiritual unity. He continues in verse 23, AI in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So we could say here this, we could say this, that the model of this unity for which Jesus prays with regard to his disciples is a unity, watch this, it is a unity that's grounded first in fellowship with God and secondarily with one another, a unity that is spiritual, a unity that's derived from God. It is a unity that's based on a common participation in the things of God. In short, that unity of his people for which our Lord Jesus prays is a unity with himself and with his Father. Spiritual in nature, this unity consists therefore in oneness of heart, oneness of mind, oneness of will and purpose with respect to loving God and those who are the children of God. So that at the end of the day, the basis of our unity as Christians has nothing, it has nothing to do with such matters as our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our professional or recreational interests. Our unity as Christians is not based on mere friendship. It is not based on mere human friendship or on similarity of temperament. Somebody says, well, you know, I can't have fellowship. I can't be in unity with this person, with that church, because they're not like me. And what they're referring to, they're referring to that which is physical, that which is external. And the point is, our Lord Jesus makes it clear through the statements we have just read that this unity has nothing to do with that which is external and physical. It is a unity that takes its pattern after the unity that subsists between the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what is the motive for this unity? We have looked at the model of this unity. The model of this unity is that relationship between the Lord Jesus and his Father, indeed, that unity which exists among the Trinity. Well, let's talk about the motive for this unity. And the question is, to what end 
did our Lord Jesus pray for the unity of his followers? Why was it important that his people be united? Notice verses 21 and 23. Here's what our Lord Jesus says. He says, as he, as he prays to the Father, he says that they all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's what he says. So that the world may believe you have sent me. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you love me. According to our Lord Jesus, the motive for which believers should live in unity is so that it might have an evangelistic impact on a lost world. It's so that the world might be positively impacted. The motive for Jesus' prayer for unity of his people is that by their unity, their witness might be effective in bringing the unbelieving to faith in him. You remember in a related verse, John chapter 13, verse 35, he told his disciples these words. He says this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And what he's saying there is this, that if the world is to be convinced of the truth of God, if the world is to be convinced of the reality of our relationship with him as followers of his, then they'll be convinced not so much by our talk as by our walk, by the loving, united way in which we relate to one another, our fellow believers, as his people. So in the unity of God's people, Jesus is making it clear that there is tremendous power. There is tremendous power when God's people are in unity. And in the book of Acts, for example, we see something of the remarkable power of the unity among the first century Christians. Repeatedly, Luke calls attention to the various ways in which they express their love, in which they express their unity, in which they lived in harmony with one another. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Luke relates how that, following the ascension of Jesus to heaven, the Bible says there, they were all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were together at prayer. One of the ways the church expresses its unity is not simply by gathering over a meal. That's good and that's okay, but here's the point. We could be gathering over food, and as we pointed out in a sermon recently, we saw how that eating a meal together is not necessarily Christian fellowship. Doing fun things together is not necessarily Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship, Christian unity is spiritual in nature. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says this, On the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place. Acts chapter 2 verse 46, they attended the temple together. Acts chapter 4 verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God in prayer. Now listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 33, and note the tremendous power they wielded because of their unity, their love one for another. Notice the spiritual power they experienced. We read in Acts chapter 4, 32 to 33, he says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, that's unity, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, 
but they had everything in common. Listen to verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What's the point there? That never is the church more powerful in its witness as when the church is united. It's when God's people are living in harmony with one another. Just the exact opposite is true where there's division and dissensions among God's people. As I said earlier, there's nothing that's more damaging, nothing that's more hurtful, nothing that's more destructive to the church, to the health of the church, the growth of the church as disunity. How many a local church has been destroyed by quarrels and dissensions in its ranks? How often do we hear skeptics, unbelievers, Leveling the charge against the church. Well, if those Christians can relate to one another like that, if they can be so hateful to one another, they can so be so mean and nasty to one another, then I don't want to have anything to do with that. I will not be a Christian. Oh, true the word of God in James chapter 3, verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So this matter of unity is so critical, so important, that repeatedly Jesus in this prayer is praying earnestly, passionately for the unity of his people. And then the third thing I want for us to notice, and with this one we close this afternoon, the third thing for which Jesus prays with regard to his disciples, he prays not only for, number one, their security, number two, their unity, but he prays for their serenity. He prays for their serenity. He says there in verse 13, But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. His point here is this, that if his people are to navigate the troubles, the trials, the anxieties of this life, then they must have serenity of heart, serenity of mind and soul in the midst of trouble. We're talking here about that inner composure and serenity of heart, soul and mind, and which is of course related to joy because someone has defined joy and I believe rightly so, joy is peace intensified. Joy is that disposition of heart whereby even in the midst of the most troubling circumstances, we are serene, we are composed based on the knowledge that God is in charge. This joy, as we have often said, is not necessarily happiness. This joy is not a happy-go-lucky, carefree spirit. This joy is a spirit of composure, it is a spirit of serenity and calm, even in the midst of troubling trials and difficulties. But we have to ask the question, what are the features of this joy for which Jesus prays? This joy that he prays with respect to his disciples. And first of all, we notice the distinctiveness of this joy. The distinctiveness of this joy. This joy, you notice, is particularly and peculiarly Christ's own joy. Because he characterizes it as my joy. Look back at verse 13. He says, I speak in, he says, but now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have, notice, my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
You see, inasmuch as our Lord Jesus is none other than the divine Son of God, it therefore follows that the joy he gives is a divine joy, is a spiritual joy, is a supernatural joy. As such, this joy for which he prays that his disciples might have is a holy, heavenly joy, which means that unlike the joy the world offers, his is a joy that is pure, a joy that is fulfilling, a joy that is eternal. So the distinctiveness of this joy, this joy is peculiarly and particularly his joy. He speaks of it as my joy. In fact, he said to his disciples somewhere else in the book of John, he says, I give to you my joy and no man taketh it away from you. Second, we notice the derivation of this joy, the derivation or source of this joy. And we see this in Jesus' statement in verse 13. He says this, and these things, here's what our Lord Jesus says. He says, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy in fulfilled, my joy fulfilled in themselves. Notice what our Lord Jesus does here in this statement. He predicates or bases this joy that he desires for his people on the things he spoke in the world. Somebody says, what in the world is that? What things did he speak in the world? And simply put, the answer is this. The things he spoke in the world were the very truths of the word of God. So that we could therefore say, we could say then that the joy of the disciples for which Jesus prays derives from the word of God. Do you see that? He says, I spoke these things in the world. What are these things? Those things he spoke in the world, the word of God. Why did he speak those things in the world? So that my joy might be fulfilled in them. Here's the point, my friends. We cannot have true joy unless that joy is informed by and grounded in the word of God. To the extent that we know the word of God, we are applying the word of God, we are believing the word of God, we will have the joy of the Lord. Again, how different from the joy of the world, which derives from sensual pleasures, from material possessions, from the prestige of this age. Those things the Apostle John refers to in 1 John 2 verse 16 as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You see, the joy that the world gives is a fake joy. It's no real joy. It's a joy that's based on sinful lusts. It is a joy that is based on the things, on material things, the things of this life. That is why, for example, you look at many a millionaire. They have lost that money, and all of a sudden the joy goes. They jump hundreds of feet from high-rise building to their death. Why? Because the joy, the happiness is gone. You take a man like Job, you take a firm believer in God, in the Lord Jesus, that person suffers loss, is even in hell elf, and what is the response of that person? God be praised, God is good. You see, that's the difference between the world's joy and the happiness of this world. And in closing, I say this, that this joy that has its source in the Lord Jesus Christ and his word is precisely that joy that will enable us to ward off the stresses and anxieties of this life. It is that joy that will empower us to surmount the bitter, grievous trials that attend the life of faith, and we are and will continually be exposed to the trials of this world. As the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, he says in this, speaking of salvation, he says in this, you rejoice, 
But listen to the realism of the Apostle Peter. Peter realized that we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world, a world of sorrow, a world of trials. He says, in your salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And the joy our Lord Jesus gives, my friends, is not a fake joy. It is a sustaining joy. It's a real joy that comes through the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in tandem with the Word of God. Such was a joy on account of which Paul and Silas, even after they were humiliated, even after they were badly beaten, thrown in jail, the Word of God tells us in Acts chapter 16, verse 27, they were yet praying and singing hymns of praise to God at midnight. The joy the Lord gives, the joy for which he prays in connection with his disciples is a supernatural joy, which means this. It is a joy that can surmount and overcome life's bitterest trials and heartache. May God grant that you and I might know the reality of this joy, not just when times are going fine, not just when everything is going well, but even amidst challenges, difficulties we encounter from day to day.